Well, if you have been uh, following along with the one-year Bible reading plan, then you are already in the book of Exodus, which means you have completed Genesis, and at this point, you've also established a habit, which is going to be easy to carry on for the rest of the year. Uh, this is the toughest part. You, you keep up with it, and then you realize you can do it, and you continue on. So congratulations uh, for those of you who have kept up, for those of you who are a touch behind, touch being interpreted in wherever you are. Uh, that's okay. Uh, you can still get caught up if you're a little bit behind. But I really want to encourage you with this. Without giving license for gratuitously being lazy, just keep going through. Just keep working through. And if it takes you until February 2019, that's okay. If it takes you through June 2019, that's okay. Just don't quit. Just, just don't stop reading your Bible. You know, that's what you absolutely need to do. So just keep, keep going. Although we, we do take Saturday afternoons and do all kinds of things, so if it takes a couple hours of reading it caught back up, uh, that, that may be okay too. Today I want us to look at Genesis 50. Genesis chapter 50. I'm actually just going to read uh, verse 33 of chapter 49 uh, to frame out some context and we're going to continue on. This is the word of God. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, just as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him 
to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Maker, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Well, before we uh, work through this section together, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you and you alone truly know how this calendar year has been unfolding for us. You know the, the joys and the sorrows, uh, the intensity and the apathy of every heart. You know our circumstances and how we are faring. You, you know uh, our sin. You know our holiness. You know uh, our worship. You know everything there is to know about us. You not only uh, know us as well as we know ourselves, you know us infinitely better. And so, Father, I would ask that by your Spirit you will search us, that you will know us, and that you will help us to understand ourselves through your knowledge, not our own. I pray that if there are things in our lives that we require repentance of, that you will, uh, by your Spirit, give us the grace to repent. I pray that you will give us strength to honor you. I pray that as a church family, you will continue to work. I pray that we will grow, and not, not necessarily uh, numerically, but to grow uh, in depth. I pray that you will take us deeper in our walk with you than we've ever been before. 
I pray that you will bind us closer together uh, as brothers and sisters than we have ever been before. And Lord, we know that uh, Crestwick has been around for a number of decades. And yet, Lord, we would ask that in your grace, the, the holiest and best days will yet be ahead of us. We would pray that you would get a hold of us in a real way, uh, that you would so work in us that it is impossible for us to simply have religious services and do religious things, but that we will be a people filled with your Spirit, uh, saturated by your Word, living for you, honoring you, glorifying you, loving you, passing on the love that you pour into our hearts to others, both who are part of this family and who are outside in the community and in the world. Give us great wisdom. Give us great compassion. Give us the full measure of the Spirit. Even this morning, may your word be used to direct us as we walk with you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the, one of the benefits and difficulties of going through the one-year Bible reading program and me selecting a text to preach from out of that week's readings is that there's so much that's not being said that I want to say. And let's be honest, there's so much that I'm not saying that you want me to say. And so maybe we could, we could just make this a couple hours. So we can, we can do that starting next week if you'd like. Uh, there's just so much that, that, that begs to be said. And so I'm trying to not say too much and to be focused and constrained to the text. But it's difficult to hit Genesis 50, the end of the Joseph narrative, and not to have been able to say anything about Joseph before. So... Here's the quick tour, and, and you, will, you will recall all of these things. Start to Genesis 37. You have your young man of 17, Joseph, who really is a bit of a braggart. He really is. Uh, one of the things, again, that we need to resist is we need to resist putting all of these Old Testament figures on pedestals as if they can do no wrong, and they're utterly righteous and innocent in everything. Joseph isn't a bad guy, but he's also not exactly tactful. And you get the impression in the text that he is, he is more than just a little bit pleased with the special dreams and abilities that God has given him, the special role that he occupies in the family. Uh, he doesn't mind telling his brothers about these sorts of things and drawing their attention to it. Now, his brothers, of course, are the uh, eponymous ancestors of the 12 tribes. And so what you're going to get is here you're getting, in a bit of a microcosm, all kinds of issues and problems that are going to plague Israel throughout its subsequent history. This is the nation in microcosm. When you get into Joshua, one of the things you're going to find is you're going to find that the nation is often at civil war. When you get into the monarchy post-David, I mean, you have David, then you have, even in David's day, you'll recall that Judah appoints David to be king and recognizes his kingship seven years before the northern tribes do. And so even there, David doesn't, he rules over a unified kingdom eventually, but David isn't king over all of Israel at the beginning. Then with Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom splits. You have oftentimes of treaties, oftentimes of civil war. What you have here 
is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's sons are experiencing Israel's first civil war. They're divided against each other. They're willing to kill unless they can profit. And then they decide to sell Joseph into slavery instead of taking his life. This has got to be an enormous sort of red flag in terms of God's program. If you're reading the text thoughtfully, you don't know how it turns out. You're supposed to get there. You're supposed to say, wait a minute. This is the covenant line. This is the seed. This is where all nations on earth are going to be blessed through this group. And look at them. You know, they're utterly deplorable in terms of how they work together. They, they can't, not only can't they bless the world, they can't even get along in their own family. They're literally murderous in their own family group. How on earth is God going to bring blessing to the world through this set of individuals? In Genesis 38, you'll recall uh, the story with Tamar and the two boys who the Lord puts to death. And then Judah has a younger son, and Judah says, okay, you know, Tamar, when he grows up, then he can marry you. And Judah has absolutely no intention whatsoever of allowing Tamar to marry Sheila, his youngest son. And then Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, sleeps with Judah, which by itself is actually one of the things that's sometimes overlooked in that text, is how shockingly bad Judah's character is. Not that he sleeps with her, that's bad enough but that she knows he will when she comes up with the plan. She already knows his character so thoroughly. If I just disguise myself as a prostitute, of course he'll sleep with me. That's the kind of person he is. Think about that. Then she becomes pregnant, and Judah, who wants to get rid of her, finds it very convenient. She's guilty of prostitution. Bring her out and burn her to death. Fine moral sentiment from a fine moral man. Until she says, yes, 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 I am. And, and I'm pregnant through the man who owns these things, Judah's staff and seal. And all of a sudden, Judah says, you know what? Why don't we just put the fire out? You know, maybe, maybe we're a little bit hasty. Maybe she doesn't need to be burned to death. Let's not go around burning to death people who are guilty of prostitution today. We'll, we'll declare an amnesty. And then he says this literally in the Hebrew text. He says, she is righteous, not I. English translations bring it across that she is more righteous than I. But he literally says, she is righteous, not I. How? She has come from a pagan background, has a right to be married into the covenant family, and she wants seed, she wants children in the covenant line. In other words, she has put everything she is into this family for covenant seed in line with the blessings of Abraham, and she will not be denied. Judah is denying her this covenant relation and is pushing her back into paganism. Tamar becomes an absolute hero in Jewish interpretation in subsequent centuries because she will do anything in order to be part of the covenant family. It's not necessarily endorsing all of her ethics. But it's saying that there was a greater impulse behind what she did. Judah recognizes that he himself is not righteous. Fascinatingly, from this time on, there's a major shift in the covenant family. Reuben, who was the firstborn, is useless and is thrown off to the side. Judah emerges as the leader of the brothers in the rest of the, of the Joseph narrative. Now, in distinction to Judah... 
sleeping with the prostitute. The very next chapter, you have Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And Joseph does the right thing. Joseph is righteous. And he pays for it with prison. Years of prison. But the text says that God was with him. God was with him even when he was languishing in in the, the dungeon jail that he would have been in. Now, the text also gives some pretty good indication that that Potiphar really didn't believe his wife's accusations either. I mean, if Joseph as a slave had really attempted to to force himself on Potiphar's wife, Potiphar would have had him put to death. And so the text says when Potiphar heard these things, he burned with anger, but it doesn't say who he burned that anger towards. It's very interesting. I think this is a very, very good indication in the text that, that he doesn't believe his wife at all, really. But what's he going to do? So he throws Joseph in jail to satisfy her. Now you know how Joseph is exalted, God is with him, he's exalted, and all of the rest. The brothers end up coming for food. And remember, he has Simeon bound. You must come back for your brother. You must bring your younger brother. The climax of it is Genesis 45, where the brothers stand before Joseph. Joseph has engineered for Benjamin's cup to be in the sack, right? And now, there's Benjamin, son of the favorite wife, the Joseph replacement. All of his brothers know that, jo- that Jacob favors Benjamin more than all of them put together, just like he had Joseph. And there in Egypt... Joseph says, you can all go back free, but that boy has to stay and be my slave. Well, what's he done? What Joseph has masterfully done is he has recreated exactly the situation that he had been in when his brothers sold him into slavery. He's given them the exact same opportunity. It's the exact same thing. The favorite son of the favorite wife, the only son in Jacob's eyes, Slavery in Egypt, you all go free. That's exactly what they did to Joseph. And so now, Joseph wants to see, have you changed or are you exactly what you used to be? And who's the one who speaks? It's long, beautiful discourse. It's Judah. Do not let me see the pain that this would bring to my father. At this point, Judah has lost two of his sons. Perhaps the death of his sons caused him to reflect greatly on the pain that they had brought to their father when they lied about Joseph's death. He's realized that, he's realized that he is not righteous. And what Judah ends up basically saying, I will be the slave, let Benjamin go. And it's at that moment that Joseph realizes there has been a major change in Judah. He breaks down, he weeps, and he reveals his identity to his brothers, gets them to come and and all the rest settle in and everything's wonderful. He forgives them. And then you hit Genesis 50. Jacob dies. Joseph and his brothers and family and also all the court of the Egyptians, they have an official ceremony, an official time of mourning. I think you know, there are some things out of the narrative that you can, you can draw out in the first 14 verses that, that are helpful. Um, there, I mean, there is a time for mourning 
there is a season for it. It will look different in different cultures. Um, but there, there's a real human need to grieve properly. We talked about this last week from Psalm 13 a little bit. We need to give people space to grieve. We need to allow people to mourn. You, you have to do that. It's proper. But there's also a time to go forward. That is not nearly the same as there is a time to forget. But there is a time to move on. There's a time to keep breathing. Time to keep walking. A time to return to other responsibilities. And so that is a balance. That looks differently for different people. But here, one of the things that we see is that Joseph, he takes time to mourn and grieve. Then he moves back. There's, there, there's still life to live. You know, there are still things to do. We need to, we need to find that balance. We need to help each other find that balance as a community as well. You know, creating opportunity for people to mourn and also then helping people sometimes come back into uh, the stream of regular life. Verse 15, though, tells you a lot about Joseph's brothers. Not very much about Joseph. That comes later. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Interestingly enough, this is a window into their own psychology. This is not on the basis of how Joseph has treated them. This is on the basis of their own guilt. Can we really be forgiven? And one of the great things about this is is that Joseph, of course, does for him. He, He really has sincerely forgiven them. And he forgives them because God has given him the strength to forgive them. And one of the things that we need to recognize, too, is that if Joseph was able to forgive his brothers, if he was truly able to forgive them, and his strength came from God, then, of course, if we have been forgiven by God, we've been really forgiven. Like, really, really forgiven. And so you don't need to keep coming to God, asking for forgiveness for the same things over and over and over and over again. In the same way, it's actually a little bit heartbreaking here that Joseph's brothers didn't trust the genuineness and the validity of Joseph's forgiveness. How much worse not to really trust that God forgives? God is a forgiving God. And so when we come to him, just like his brothers, what if he pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They were legitimate wrongs. There's no footnotes, there's no asterisks, there's no qualification. It was wrong. But Joseph forgave. One of the ways you can tell if, if you're really repentant when you come to God is if you're actually just willing to call something wrong, something wrong. Are you actually willing to call sin, sin? That's one of the ways you can tell. Lord, I was wrong. I did the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. I should not have done that. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? No justifications, no circumstances, just it was wrong. I need forgiveness. It seems that Joseph's brothers make up this story. The text doesn't say that, but it seems that this is just concocted. So this is probably deceptive. Your father left these instructions before he died. Interesting that if he did, he didn't leave them with Joseph. Probably would have been a better choice. Your father left these instructions. Uh, Tell Joseph, I asked you as your father to forgive your brothers. This is almost like, you know, coming along saying, just, just, this is, now Joseph, you can't obviously go against dad's dying words on his deathbed. And, And what he wanted was for you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. 
So please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Interestingly enough, the text says when their message came to him, Joseph wept. Joseph begins the chapter with weeping because of, because of death. Physical death. And here he weeps again. Almost certainly because of relational death. Not that his relationship with his brothers is dying now. But he realizes that after all of these years, there's, there's no trust. There, there's no security. There's, there's really no love. They're just afraid. And he weeps. Because as much as it's justified to weep in the face of death, it's equally justified to weep in the face of broken relationships. There are some things that ought not to be. Some of those things are very serious. And some of those things are worth crying about. There are things that are worth rejoicing about. There are things that are worth weeping about. And here Joseph weeps. Because his brothers just do not understand him or forgiveness or grace. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. So the second time, when, when Joseph first reveals his identity, they say, you know, we are your slaves. Now they're saying the exact same thing. We are your slaves. Once again, they know that Joseph can do to them what they did to him. And they're worried that he will. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? This... This will keep you from so much folly if you can actually take it seriously. You are not God. You're not. One of the absurd... I mean, sin is a lot of different things, right? I mean, it's a lot of very, very different things. But one of which is sin is utterly stupid. It is utterly stupid for us to go around posturing as if we're God. But that's exactly what we do every time we sin. We we act as if we really know how to live better than God knows how we should live. As if God's sovereign rule is, is not as good as the rule we would have. As if God's ethical code isn't as good for me as my ethical code, or whatever. And so we actually arrogate to ourselves the position and title of deity every time we rebel against God. Every time. Am I in the place of God? Why did Adam and Eve sin at the beginning of Genesis? You shall be like God. 
Genesis begins with a man wanting to be God and ends with a man refusing to act like God. Am I in the place of God? If you work through Genesis 3 to here, that becomes one of the dominant lessons of the book. Don't try to be God. And if you're not, then act like a human being. Don't arrogate to yourself God's prerogatives. There are things that God has authority over. He has not delegated all that authority to you. Am I in the place of God? God will deal with your sin, not me, Joseph is saying. My responsibility is to forgive. In this glorious verse, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is like Genesis 45, where Joseph says to, to his brothers, you sold me, but God sent me. In Joseph's understanding, all that happens in his life is orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God. That is the ultimate reality of his life's path. His brothers are responsible for what they've done. Nothing mitigates against that. The sovereignty of God, the overruling sovereignty of God, God's plan, does not mean that the, evil, the, that the agents who perform evil in that plan are guiltless. They're entirely responsible for what they do. You intended to harm me. Joseph calls the spade a spade. Let's be honest. I mean, the brothers didn't sell Joseph into slavery, hoping that Joseph would end up being his second in command in Egypt. That wasn't their goal. Their goal was to get rid of him and to make a little bit of money instead of killing him themselves. That was their goal. You intended to harm me. That's exactly what they wanted to do. But God didn't intend to harm me. God intended it for good. This is true of the life of every believer. No matter what anyone does to you, no matter how cruel and how evil the intention, God will use it for good. No matter what. You see this in other places in Scripture, too. But the most important one is at the cross. Acts 4. Acts 2. Wicked people put Jesus to death, but all they do is what God's foreknowledge and will had determined ahead of time. The evil, the wicked men with wicked hands who put Christ to death are intending to rid the universe of the life of the Son of God incarnate. But God intends the crucifixion to be the salvation of the world, the pathway for a new heavens and new earth. And so if, if God is able to bring salvation and atonement and adoption and union and new heavens and new earth and glorification, if God can bring all of that to the most wicked act in human history, which is the murder of the Son of God incarnate, then there are no circumstances through which God can't bring incredible, glorious, overriding good for us. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. His purpose prevails. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. His purpose prevails. In fact, what God had in mind, you had in mind murder. What God had in mind was the saving of lives. Pretty different intention, but the same act. Same at the cross. 
you intended it to be murder, God intended it to be salvation for the universe. Pretty different intention, but it's the same act. And God's purpose ultimately prevails. That's a soft pillow for a weary head at night. No matter what the news of the day is, God's purpose prevails. Ironically, some of those lives that were saved through Joseph were the lives of the brothers who sold him in the first place. Isn't that amazing? That, that if, if it wasn't for Joseph being sold into Egypt in slavery, they all would have starved to death. Wonder if they, wonder if they had known that. Well, obviously not. What an amazing thing. I wonder if in retrospect, have they ever sat around at the fire saying, you know what, interesting. Remember when we sold Joseph into slavery? Do you realize that like, that's why we have food in our stomachs tonight? Like, it's just all these years later. You could never, never, in all their wildest imagination, they could never have possibly imagined what God was going to do for their benefit. This is an incredible thing. Do you realize that, that even through your past evil, God can work redemptively for your good. Do you know that? It doesn't justify anything that we do that is outside of God's revealed will. But, but God will work all things out together for good to those who love him and call according to his purpose. It's everything. And, and one of the things, this is why it's grace. Grace isn't calculated. Grace actually doesn't make any sense at all. But one of the incredible things about grace is that God will even, he will even at times enrich and bless your life through some of your past folly. The brothers' lives were immeasurably blessed in the end because of how God because of how God's design overruled the folly of their sin when they sold their brother into slavery. Just meditate. Think about that. It in no way justifies what they did. But do you realize that there is a God who is so sovereign, His grace actually triumphs over our sin? That's how big God is. He's not a small God. Uh, he is not a God who is beholding to us to get it right for him to bless us. He's a God of unspeakable grace. And Joseph passes on some grace as well. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. It was mercy that Joseph didn't simply keep them all as slaves. If you are a younger sibling, there's a very, very good chance that at some time in your life, you just thought about all the things you would do to your older sibling if you were in a position of power. All the times you would get them back. If you were in the position of authority and power, then you would do this to make up for all of those things. And here, Joseph has the absolute fantasy of the younger sibling. He can do anything he wants, and what he does is he gives them mercy. 
No. No, I will not take you as slaves. I'm not God. In fact, not only will I give you mercy, I'll give you grace. I'll provide for you. I'll, I'll take it upon myself to make sure you and your children are taken care of. They were going to murder him and he overheard their conversation about it. He was there when they sold him into slavery. He was there crying out to them for mercy when they accepted those coins from the caravan. And here he is with absolute power of life and death saying, you have nothing to fear. I will provide for you. I'll take care of you and your family. That's an amazing thing. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He gave them promises. He spoke to them. Do you know that God has also reassured us and spoken to us in his word? God's promises of mercy and grace and forgiveness are here. So, so Joseph speaks kindly. Joseph speaks words of reassurance. But God does the same for us. God has spoken to us. He has given us his son. He, he, has, he has revealed himself to us. He is a God of mercy and grace. Read his promises. That's how you'll find assurance. That's how you'll find assurance of salvation. That's how you'll find reassurance of his love and care. He will care for you. He is a merciful and gracious God. Don't turn away from his word. The text actually moves very rapidly, though, from Jacob's death to Joseph's death. And so now that you see the, the, the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace in the covenant family, Joseph stays in Egypt, lives 110 years, sees the third generation, and then he's about to die. And notice what he says. I am about to die, verse 24. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will surely come to your aid. It's a very odd, odd thing to say. Why? How powerful and rich is Joseph? You, you, you can't be higher than he is in sort of the, the stratosphere of the superpower of the day's political hierarchy. And his family is, because of his connection, rich and powerful too. And Joseph said, God will come to your aid. But they're doing just fine. They have the best that Egypt has to offer. They're politically connected. They're fabulously wealthy. They, they, anything they need is theirs. But Joseph says, God's going to come to you, and he's going to come to your aid. Why? Well, you hear hints of what's going to happen in the future here. Yes, you do. But here's the real problem. Whether they are oppressed slaves in future generations, or whether they are rich and powerful and politically connected in that generation, they're not where they need to be. Egypt is not their home. The promised land is. God needs to come and deliver you from your wealth, 
Joseph is saying. God needs to come and deliver you from your political connectedness. This world is not your home. Remember our our great-grandfather Abraham, who was always looking forward to another place, a heavenly place, who realized that his citizenship was not here in this world. That's us. This is is one of these fantastic statements of someone who had it all in his world and recognized that's not where his home was. We need to make sure that we don't settle into Canada. We need to make sure that we are well aware that just as Egypt wasn't the home of the covenant family, this world isn't our home either. Uh, Our home is somewhere else. And so Joseph says, even symbolically, I don't want a memorial in Egypt. Just just bury me in that, that communal cave in the promised land. That's my, that's my home. That's, that's my resting place. Not here. Not in the pomp and circumstances and wealth and luxury of Egypt, but in that little despised corner of Palestine. Bury me there. My eternal destiny is bound up not with this life, but with the promises of God in the life to come. Genesis starts with God, with creation, with life, with Eden. And it literally ends with a coffin in Egypt. That's the trajectory of sin. You start with Eden. You end with death. You start with life and fecundity. You end with bones in a coffin in a land not your own. That is exactly everything that Genesis tells us about sin. And the question that we have asked at several points in Genesis is this. Can God bring life out of death? That's the question the book leaves you with at the end. Here you have a coffin in Egypt. What's God going to do now? What can God do when you start with life and creation and you end with a corpse in a coffin in Egypt? Where's the future there? Where's the hope and the promise there? What do we make of all of God's promises now? The book ends with a coffin. You know what? The story of your life can end with a coffin too. So the question is, can God bring life out of death? Is the coffin in Egypt the last word of your story? Or are you going to the promised land? Is there a, is there a place for you after death which will be your eternal home? To answer those questions, you have the book of Exodus. Because Genesis ends with a coffin, but Genesis is just the first part of a five-part book known as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. One story. And what you begin to find is that, yeah, you know, God, God can bring life out of death. God does come to his people's aid. This is not the last word in the story. In fact, God's revelation is going to reveal himself more clearly than ever before, just three chapters from now. 
And he's going to come to deliver his people. He's going to do it in a glorious way that points forward to Christ. We're going to look at that next week. By God's grace. Can God bring life out of death? Yes. He does. He actually does. It's an amazing thing. Human sin ends the book with a corpse in a coffin. But then God's grace brings life. Not just here in this world, but life eternally. Through his work of redemption. Which is what the book of Exodus tells us about. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.